0: Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 29, Quilting with Leslie Tucker-Jenison, recorded on April 16th, 2015. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Shoebalzer. Hi, Mom.
1: Hello, Julie.
0: So what's so, up? The weather's finally nice. You can't complain about snow in Boston anymore.
1: Of course we can. <laughs> we can complain about it forever because we hit a new record. In the meantime, uh, you just started a new class yesterday at the Museum of Modern Art. What is it and why did you take it since the topic is something you're not sort of intuitively drawn to?
0: So the museum, I'm very, very lucky. The Museum of Modern Art, or MoMA, um, is like three blocks from my house. And so I take a lot of classes there. And I'm taking a studio class right now with a teacher I've taken before. And I was completely uh, dragged into it by my friend Nat Callback. Um, this class is on cubism. And cubism is something that I sort of, um, I'm going to be mature about it and say it's, 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 it's a school of art I don't respond to naturally. And so uh, Natalie said to me, and I think this is true about taking classes, and uh, is that sometimes when you understand something better, if even if you don't like it, you can appreciate it. So she said to me, you should take the class. It's only four sessions. At the very least, you'll make some art that you like, and you'll learn something, which I think, you know, is always a good thing. I also... I'm a great believer, and I have preached this before, that I think you need to be uncomfortable in order to push yourself to the next level in art making. So I'm taking this class to sort of make myself uncomfortable and see what happens. Maybe it'll be good, maybe it'll be bad, but if anything, it'll. I'm, I'm making art every Tuesday, so how can I complain, right?
1: Well, I was actually reading an article, I think I sent it to you, maybe it's from the Harvard Business Review, and it was a, something like six signs that you're ready to have a new job. To, and. The first one was if you're not learning anything anymore. So in your Mm. art job, I think you have to keep learning things or you'll get bored and you'll stop growing and you won't want to do it anymore.
0: I agree. I mean, listen, we're only in April of 2015. I can hear myself feedback.
1: Good for you. Anybody
0: else hear an echo? No, maybe I'm just enjoying myself twice. There you go. Anyway, okay. Uh, What I was gonna say is, I think it's only April, and I've already taken three or four classes this year because I think taking classes is really important to just you know continuing to be interested in what you're doing. Because again, if you're not uncomfortable, if you're not learning, if you're not pushing yourself, what's the point? Um, And speaking of someone who not only teaches all over the place, but also uh, tries out a lot of cool stuff, um, our guest today is Leslie Tucker Jenison. And Leslie is an award-winning artist who works with cloth and paper and surface design using dye and paint or integral components of her work. She has written and been featured in numerous publications, has made several appearances on Quilting Arts TV, which by the way, happens to be where she and I first met many years ago, was on the set of Quilting Arts TV. And Leslie serves on the board of the Quilt Alliance and is a member of numerous local and national quilt and service design organizations. She curates exhibitions as half of Dinner at Eight Artists, which we're gonna talk a lot about, I hope. And for fun facts, Leslie enjoys reading, gardening, traveling, and this is the one that I really want to start with. She is a private pilot. So welcome, Leslie.
2: Hello. It's so great to be here with both of you. And I would like to add to your introduction that I believe I met both of you at the same time in the green room at one of the Quilting Arts TV tapings. I can't remember which season it was. Maybe you remember, but I I can't. But I can remember
0: what I had for breakfast. So I'm just glad that you remember that you met us. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I I fell in
2: love with both of you then. And that's a little creepy sounding, but I don't mean it to be like that.
0: Well, we're but so it was, lovable. It's, you know, of course, just natural.
2: <laughs> you are. I really thought it was great that you were both there together. And it was just a really fun that whole that whole experience is a great adventure, I think.
0: So it, it was is. a lot. Of fun. Who doesn't like to have all makeup put on and then talk, you know, quilting and fabric with other people who are geeking out about it, right? Absolutely. I and you have three works. daughters who you're close to as well. Yes. All of them artists. And uh, we have, yeah, we're very
2: fortunate. The girls are really eccentric. I can't imagine where they got that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, don't see some of them as much as others. We have one that lives just up the road in Austin. I'm in San Antonio. The other two live up in the Northeast. My youngest daughter lives in West Central Mass in Northampton. And my oldest daughter lives in Philadelphia. So we don't see them as much as we would like, but we see them when we can. And I just had my youngest one here for the weekend. It was her 25th birthday and she was back for her wedding. And so we had a good time together. It was great. I always enjoy spending time with them. They she um, was
0: back for her wedding.
2: No, she was back for a wedding. If I said oh, her for wedding, a was wedding. An error. I was yeah. like,
0: I follow you on Instagram pretty closely, and I don't remember <laughs> wedding
2: preparation conversations. No, no, no. She came back for one of her classmates from high school's wedding, and so it was also her birthday weekend. So it was just nice to have her around, and I think she was really happy. You know, I know that uh, Eileen, you're from Boston, and we we all know how. Uh, what kind of a winter you've had. I don't know if you're driving, if you're, are you, are you driving a dog sled now instead of a regular vehicle? You know, vehicle we or? did
1: have more snow than Alaska, right? They had to That's import crazy. snow for the Iditarod race up there because they didn't have enough. We could have sent them some.
2: Yeah. Or you could, maybe they should just have the Iditarod there.
1: I think and so. Just,
2: you know, uh, set a new precedent, but yeah, it's insane how much snow you had. I can't even comprehend. And you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I am now in South Texas because of that very thing. And I'm married to a guy who probably hates cold weather and snow more than anybody on the face of the planet. So um the fact that we're here, and we do have a little cold weather, but it's nothing. We can't even really talk about it to anybody from the Northeast because they just sneer at us for saying, suggesting that we have cold weather here you
0: know we mock you and now to sound like a total stalker on your instagram i do notice you have a lovely pool that i often am jealous of because in the middle of the winter months i see you guys dipping your toes in
2: yes we do we occasionally we don't heat it all the time i mean it does get chilly enough that you would be somewhat reluctant to get into it but i realize cold is a relative thing
1: i was just gonna say poor baby i know
2: (laughs) I know. I don't expect any sympathy whatsoever. But, you know, it is a bit chilly to get in uh, when it's in the middle of the winter because the water cools off and stays cool. And so we'll heat it up for a couple of weeks when everybody's home for the holidays. And we do have a hot tub out there that my husband spends almost every evening during the winter in. So, yeah, it's it's pretty wonderful to be able to do that here. And it is one of the it is one of the best parts of being in this part of the country is that we really can be outside a lot of the year. I mean, we do have a little coolness here and there. It occasionally dips below freezing, which is unusual, but we do get that. And I've even seen white stuff on the ground a few times since I've lived here. I've been here 17 years now. We have something that it doesn't really look like snowfall as we think of it in the Northeast or the Midwest, but we have something that looks sort of little, little like a cross between it sort of looks like the stuff that comes out of your, you know, those old 70s era beanbag chairs we had. I mean, that's really what the stuff that comes out of the sky here, if it freezes, looks like. I call it sneet. I don't know what the actual (laughs) official name is for it, but we occasionally get Because
0: Texas is known for having ice storms, aren't they?
2: Further north,
0: yes. Ah. Uh,
2: Dallas, the Dallas area in that part of the state, it's such a huge state uh, that we're in a different climate zone or a temperate zone than the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area is. And Austin, which is about 100 miles north of us, seems to get more of that kind of stuff than we do. We just seem to be, there's an invisible line somewhere between Austin and San Antonio and it, you know, the, the temperate area. I guess it's probably because we're in fairly close proximity to the Gulf of Mexico. We're only about 200 and change miles away from the Gulf. And I think it's responsible for keeping our weather so moderate. You know, we're, we're just far enough away that we don't really Get slammed by hurricanes. We'll occasionally get a the outer bands of a tropical storm or something like that. But the weather's just pretty, pretty stable here. I mean, it gets hotter than stink in the summer, but I'll take that. That's any what day. air
0: conditioning was invented for. Anyway. You know it,
2: babe. You know it. It's Exactly. <laughs> well, not right.
0: only. Do you have mighty fine weather, but you have mighty fine space. And speaking of space, mm-hmm. you have a beautiful studio, which I remember seeing when I visited you years ago. It's gorgeous. And but I hear you're doing a renovation or a redo of your studio. Yes, because when we moved in this house, for I guess the original owner of the house
2: who built it added this area that I'm in, which is my a great large space studio space. But it was intended to be a second master suite for elderly parents and it has it's wonderful in terms of this footage square footage but it is not at all uh sympathetic to my needs of uh doing surface design and I'm limited as you know we're all limited when we do this kind of work with paint or dye by the sink and even though I have a couple sinks they're those little cute fussy vanity sinks that you'd see in a master suite And it's just been almost impossible to really do any kind of uh, dye screen printing or paint print work here. So I finally decided, you know, I was sort of hesitant all these years about whether I should uproot a lot of this stuff in case we were going to sell the house, etc. But the the fact of the matter is they'll probably have to carry me out of here feet first. (laughs) So why not make the best of it? You know, I need to make this space function for me. And I do, I'm lucky that I do have a couple of other options to do wet work elsewhere. But we all know how inconvenient that is when you're having to load everything you need up and put it in a car and drive elsewhere. And then there's always one or two things that you needed that are at the other place, etc. So I decided it was just time to really face the music. Part of it horrifies me because it means that I have to take every single thing out of this space, so that they can get in here and do what they need to do, and I'm trying to convince myself that this is actually an opportunity for me to. encouraging. I know, and I, I'm really trying to get myself mentally psyched up to believe that that's true because it is true. But secretly, I'm horrified by the prospect of it because I have stuff. I mean, it's going to be quite the archaeological dig in my closet there's stuff in there that has nothing to do with my work it's just been put back there because nobody else knows what to do with it so therefore it's here you know and so I there's just going to be quite the domino effect when I start but it, it is good and it is an opportunity because really a wise friend of mine years ago said you know we should all be required about every five years to take every single thing out of our house and put it out in the front yard and then turn around and bring it back in because it would immediately separate the wheat from the chaff so to speak you would you would make some ruthless decisions about what needs to be part of your life and in your storage areas so i'm going to try to it's true no it, it really is and I, so i figure i've got two chances i've got a chance when it leaves you know when it goes out of the space to you know pass things along or just just eliminate things that really aren't relevant to the work i'm doing now And also look at it again when it comes back in because the storage is all going to be different. I'm, I'm going to really gut the space. And I've got nasty carpeting in here that needs to go. So I'm going to put wood floors in the main design area of the studio and then put better, good ventilation in the wet work area. And, uh, Oh, it's, you know, it's going to be quite the, quite the thing, but I I know that I'm going to be so happy when it's done. I'm just, you know, I'm
0: sure the results will be fabulous. There's nothing like having a custom workspace that fits you. Yeah, and Um,
2: and I'm really glad I waited to do it because I think if I had done it even five to ten years ago, the nature of what I would have done would have been quite different. So this will flex. Because you're
0: creating different
2: things now? Yes, I work differently now, I think, than I did. And it's more apparent. I mean, I've been doing dye and print work for I don't even know how long, probably since Well, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 13 years, seriously, you know, but uh, I think in that time, the kind of work, well, you know, I think you said it well in the introduction. I think if we're not pushing ourselves to learn new things, then what are we doing? You know, I'm not a person who, I, I will occasionally find something that I want to do repeatedly and maybe it takes me longer to chew it till I get all the flavor out of it, you know, but I'm kind of in the same mindset that I periodically really need to push myself into an area that I am not comfortable or don't feel that I have a great skill set for because I need to be challenged in that way. And so I think that the way the studio is going to be restructured is going to accommodate that. It's going to allow me to expand on the kind of work I'm doing, uh, but, take into consideration the work that I know I'll probably continue doing. So that's what I'm excited about with this.
0: So let's talk about some of that um, in some specifics, because now you do paper and fabric mm-hmm. and you also do dyeing of fabric with stitching in mind and without, because you're actually the person who introduced me to the whole idea of art cloth. And before we go any further, will you just explain to people what that is? Art
2: cloth is a term that was actually generated by my close friend Jane Dunwald, who is here in San Antonio, and really sort of the the founder or the the godmother of the art cloth movement, if you will. And the idea of art cloth is to see a piece of cloth in its multitude of layers. And what I mean by that is, let's just to use an example. Let's say we have a two-yard length of white cotton or white silk broadcloth. And through a series of processes using dye and paint and stitch, you can create a piece of artwork that is that cloth. So the cloth, which of course can be used in other ways, it can be um, taken apart, restitched, restructured. And of course, that's, that's a possibility. But this is the idea that the cloth stands alone as a piece of finished artwork. And so it creates imagery that has depth, it has scale, it has a spectrum of value, color. Uh, There are so many things that can be done to a piece of cloth to make it interesting, to make it visually stunning, and uh, a standalone piece of art that I think you could take that one thing and spend the rest of your artistic life Exploring, and many people do. And I certainly do. I don't consider myself fabulous at it. I mean, occasionally I have a piece that I think is really successful and stands alone, but I tend to be the person who takes that same concept and then introduces it into another type of construction. So I do both work, but I tend to use my cloth that I have done dyeing, printing layered imagery onto, into another construction, often combined with paper or other types of cloth. so.
0: You know, Leslie, I I wanna posit a theory, and you can tell me whether you think I'm wrong or right. right. But it strikes me that, um, so for mixed media paper artists, people who primarily do mixed media on paper, I think uh, for a long time, art journals were a workshopping area, and they now have sort of become, it is the art to create the art journal. And I wonder to a certain extent for people who are mixed media quilters, who are really adding a lot of paint and dye and other things to fabric. If, if instead of having the end result be a quilt, they also found the same thing, which is in the process of creating the cloth became the same thing. Do you, do you think that there's a similar, uh, I don't know what you call it, bifurcation or structure, or whatever that is there between the two in terms of how the art forms evolved into their own thing.
2: Well, I I think that's entirely possible. That for many individuals, that is exactly the process that has occurred. Uh, for others, I believe that they really began with the cloth. They they were drawn to the cloth. They were drawn to the possibilities with a into, with just a single entity piece of cloth and what it could provide in terms of the substrate. I mean, we think of paints. We think of paintings on a canvas substrate or on a wood substrate, and I think. I would draw the parallel maybe closer to that, that with our cloth, it is its own entity. And we, even though the substrate is less visible in terms of the cloth being, you know, sort of the underlayment of the imagery, you know, it doesn't stand up off of the the surface in the same way that paint would on a stretch canvas, let's say. But
0: I'm uh, very curious to know how has the quilting world embraced or not embraced art cloth?
2: (laughs) Oh, that's such a good question. And we could probably (laughs) spend weeks discussing and debating the, the merits, the, the side effects, the positives and negatives of it. I think it's one of those things where it's more accepted now when I think back on a dozen years ago or earlier at the resistance of the, let's let's say the traditional quilt world. And I would like to insert right here that I come from that background. I started quilt making back in the late 70s and early 80s. As a traditional quilt maker, I hand stitched everything and hand quilted every single thing. And so I have a high respect for that world and I'm not dissing when I say this next bit. I just think that that's been a long established medium, and when there are people who come to push it, to poke a stick at that or push the envelope of that, there's, I think it's a natural, it's a natural resistance to the change of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, so I think that there was a camp inside that world that really didn't, didn't see those kinds of processes that were being introduced in the late 90s and through the early, early part of this millennium as a legitimate art form that is considered a quilt. Now, I just, I've been mystified that from the get-go because a quilt is anything that has three, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be three pieces of metal. It could be three pieces of, if you can take three layers of something and stitch it together or bind it together in some way, it through some form, wire, stitch, uh, twine, I mean, it doesn't matter If, if it's three layers bound together with something, it's a quilt. Technically, that's the definition of a quilt. So,
0: Although, you know, I remember when painted quilts started to really come into the scene and there were all these quilts when people found out how much was painted and how little was pieced, Mm -hmm. that there was really pushed back against them as if they weren't real quilts, even if they were fabulously stitched and they looked amazing.
2: Yes, I remember walking into a a guild meeting back in 2003, and that is the year that Hollis Chaplain one best of show in houston at the international quilt festival for her piece called precious water and that piece was entirely dye painted with thickened prosium and mixed dye and then quilted by a sewing machine so it technically it was what would be called a whole cloth quilt in other words one single piece of cloth that is showcasing the stitching in this case the quilt not only was showcasing her magnificent ability to machine quilt, but it also showcased her incredible skills as a painter. And and particularly when you consider how difficult it is really to do a good painting with Procyon MX dye. And that caused quite the uh, controversial uproar in the quilt subculture, because I heard people in my local guild here say, well, that's not a quilt. I remember walking into a conversation, and this woman was expounding on how that wasn't a quilt. And I, in my kind of naivety, I guess, I walked up to her and said, "I don't understand what you mean. Why isn't that a quilt?" And her response to me was, "Well, because it's it's dye painted and it's." I said, "But isn't isn't a white white work quilt, which is an old tradition? It's a, a a traditional quilt that is basically a white on white quilt." It's a single piece of cloth that is simply highly, highly quilted. So all the design work that's visible on the quilt is through the stitch work. I said, I don't understand the difference between a white white work quilt and this quilt. It's the same basic thing. It's one piece of cloth. And she didn't have a response for me. In fact, I think she said, well, but not everyone can do that. And My response to her was, and isn't that wonderful? Because wouldn't it you know, be a, wouldn't it be a beige world if we could all do the same things? You know, Yeah, the... I
0: totally agree with that. And but I think it's interesting because I think it points to a bigger thing I think that comes into all art questions, which is why do you think that people feel the need to sort of define as this this is or this isn't? Meaning this is art, this isn't, or this is a quilt and this isn't. What where do you think that comes from?
2: Well, I don't know. My I have a couple of on it? Uh, I don't know that everyone would agree with me. I think one of the problems that perhaps quilt makers, because quilt makers struggle with this, it's a huge source of discussion and controversy and argument dialogue, is that you know, yes, quilts are can be considered a craft. Like I see, I don't see craft as a dirty word per se. A craft to me, the meaning of a craft an object that's been crafted is it's an artful object that's useful in nature. Okay. So it's something, maybe one of my quilts would hang on a wall and would be, you wouldn't want to sleep under it because of what it's made of or because of the size of it. But maybe another quilt that I make is definitely that. It could be that it could be considered a useful quilt, but it could still, in my opinion, be considered a work of art. I don't think that it has to be one or the other. And I think that maybe in this world where we're using things that are functional objects, maybe that's where the confusion comes from. Perhaps it's because primarily in this world, the vast majority are women. So we could get into a whole conversation about, about the valuation of work based on that gender value. I don't even want to open that can of worms, but you know, I <laughs> wonder to myself, over the years if perhaps that feeds into this idea because if you really think about it what is a painting on canvas what is canvas canvas is a woven piece of cloth so is it because we bind these things that these objects that we call quilts that they have a to me quilts are I consider them sort of 2.5 dimensional because they really aren't they really aren't flat. They have all this texture due to the stitch or due to the materials used in them. But technically, they're weaving. They're, they're woven cloth for the most part. So, you know, it's I don't really... Know. I,
0: think, I think it is an interesting question for me. I mean, I've dabbled in a lot of different art forms because apparently I have no attention span. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I started life sort of as a beater and doing a lot of jewelry work. I wandered into quilting for a long time, which actually quilting kicked me into a lot of mixed media stuff. I was a scrapbooker. I do all sorts of stuff. And it's funny because anytime I've come into large groups of women doing any of these art forms, I've always found them to be extraordinarily welcoming, except for quilters, which is a funny thing. And I'm not going to make this a blank statement, so please don't send me hate mail. But I won't. my I experiences with like my local guild here in New York city and a couple other places is that it was much more clicky than I had ever Mm -hmm. experienced with any other art form. And much, uh, usually my experience is like if you go to a scrapbook crop and you don't know what you're doing, 20 people want to come and help you and give you their stuff to use. Mm -hmm. And my experience of not knowing what I was doing in a quilting, uh, classroom or in a quilting, you know, guild meeting was that people wanted to stay as far away from you as possible as if you were contaminated.
2: That's I'm really sorry to hear that. I mean, I it's not the first time I've heard something like that. But uh I will happily report that there are many, many I think that may be specific to the group. And I think that, you know, we can't do anything about whether or not certain personalities are in any given group. But my experience has been that yes, I've been in I've been in that same situation. I've been in a, s I've been in a situation locally where one of the guilds I, I went into early on when we moved to Texas was very traditionally oriented, which is fine. But most of the people were, although I, the work I was making at that time was quite different than most of the people in this particular small group, most of them were very accepting of that and really interested in what I was doing. didn't mean they were going to get on the same bandwagon I was on, but they were pretty willing to embrace the work i was doing even though it was quite different but there were a few that were really vocal about not wanting to have any part of that and actually i think kind of overall had a i want to say almost an intimidation factor to the entire group it sort of it felt to me like these strong personalities kind of flavored the entire group and you know that's true of any group i think that can happen but i've been in a number i mean i will speak to our local modern guild which is one of the two guilds that i'm currently a member of locally and that people come to that guild with a lot of different hats on if they if they had to define what kind of work they make but can we folks,
0: talk about modern quilting for just one second just because you mentioned your modern guild and i'll bet there are people who don't know what that is
2: well it's very new and that's why people wouldn't know what it is but it's a very big phenomenon that's sort of sweeping across the country um, it's basically, I think, originated out of what we were just talking about, which is that the, uh, it's sort of a, I'd say that the demographic for the modern guild tends to be several decades younger than I myself am, but it's growing into a more broad spectrum demographic, I believe. But I think that it started because there were a lot of people who were making work that didn't quite fit into the niche of traditional quilting, nor did it, fall into the area of what we might refer to as art quilting, although I personally struggle with that term myself. But uh, I think they found each other on the Internet. I think it started because a couple of people started posting pictures of the work they were making on Flickr Group, and that grew, and uh, the whole thing was quite virtual in the beginning. And then the first official meeting was in Los Angeles, and now I can't remember. I believe it might have been in 2004. 10, 9 or 10, somewhere in that neighborhood. And now there are guilds all over the world that are what are called modern guilds. In fact, there's a national organization called the Modern Quilt Guild. And it's most, most of the communication, etc., is handled virtually via the internet on meetups and Facebook and all those things that we love and all our social media outlets. But the basic idea. And it's a very nebulous one, in my opinion. Is that modern quilts have a certain, uh, fairly identifiable aesthetic. However, there are no absolutes in a modern quilt. Um, I heard Heather Grant, who's one of the people who is on the, who's a, an executive of the Modern Guild nationally, say to have a modern to have a quilt that's considered a modern quilt. It's sort of like uh, ingredients in a salad. You know it's a salad, but you might not have all those things in the salad, but you know a salad when you see it, you know, which just sounds pretty, you know, it sounds pretty nebulous, but
0: modern quilt. That's a great definition. I love that because it's true. You do know a salad, although it's not always the same. It might not even have lettuce, but you recognize that it's a salad.
2: Exactly. So there's several things that tend to go into the aesthetic of a modern quilt, but you don't have to have all of them. You just have to have at least a couple of them to sort of think of it as a modern quilt. Modern quilts are very um, respectful and base a lot of the a lot of the patterns if you will or the designs come from a traditional stamp from dish, traditional quilting you see a lot of those things referenced in modern quilts the scale of the pieced designs may be different the color and the, the design work of the fabric used tends to be very contemporary there's a lot of Use of negative space is important in modern quilts. Uh, The quilting itself tends to be the star of a quilt. Uh, It's the emphasis of the quilting is much more important. Uh, Sometimes the traditional quilt will basically follow the path of whatever the piecework is. And you don't see a lot of um, extraneous work over the layer. It may just be, you know, kind of following the basic design that's integrated into the piecework of the quilt. Not always, but sometimes. So I'm not sure I'm the best expert on defining what... Well, let me ask you this Mm -hmm. question,
0: which is I've always thought looking at modern quilts that sort of the the geese bend quilts Mm -hmm. are for me... very much when I think of modern quilts what I kind of think of. Obviously a lot of the modern quilts that people make are more sort of squared up and quote unquote finished but it's that aesthetic though of simple geometric designs really graphic, really strong you know I I guess graphic is just the way I think of it.
2: I agree with you. I think that's a a very good uh, point to bring out
1: I've lost
0: the sound. Oh, I'm about to say uh, Leslie. Uh, I think we lost exactly you for a second there.
2: My response to the early modern quotes that I sir.
0: Oh, are we okay now?
2: Hello? Yeah, I can
0: hear you Hello? now. I think you just faded out for just a moment.
2: Okay, well, it started the storm has sort of moved in. I just need to, to mention that there's a storm happening outside, so I hope that that's not going to affect our ability to connect, but I'm glad I'm back. So I what I was going to say is I agree with what you said, your point of view about the Gs Bend quilts, which was exactly my reaction to my observation of the early modern quilts was that the, to me, the Gs Bend is a huge source of inspiration for that contemporary looking style of quilt making. And I am a huge fan of the Gs Bend quilts. So I was extremely excited to see this, new trend happening in quilt making it absolutely appeals to me and what's been interesting from my point of view about it is that it to me in my work it's almost feeling like a full circle kind of thing because I still have a lot of interest in doing the work I was doing with my own dyeing printing my own imagery making work that would be considered something to hang on the wall versus sleeping under but I am now starting to have a foot in both of those worlds. I've been doing a lot more useful quilts, constructing them. And I'm really enjoying the challenge of working improvisationally with really graphic prints or with solid colors to see how I can make them sing in a composition. So for me, it's been really fantastic. And I've, I'm just so excited about the aesthetic of the Meyer quilt and very interested to see where the whole style of this goes in the, in the coming years.
0: As this a side note, I did notice on your Instagram that you've been taking long arm lessons, yes?
2: Yes, I just started yesterday. I've been thinking that it would be an interesting challenge, and I was sitting here when you are doing the introduction shaking my head because I, too, am one of these people. Call me a glutton for punishment or whatever, but... I really like to poke a stick at myself periodically and challenge myself to do something that's way outside my comfort zone. And I've got a million hours on a domestic sewing machine doing free motion, unmarked quilting. That's just what I had done. And as I'm making larger quilts, that becomes really difficult. I have done large quilts inside a domestic sewing machine before, but it's physically very laborious because you have to roll the quilt up to get it through the opening etc
0: I was gonna say for people who don't know and haven't had to do it I would say laborious is an understatement it's a nightmare (laughs) and it has certainly kept me from stitching anything larger than like a twin bed and quilt and even that for me I thought I was going to kill myself halfway through because the rolling the unrolling it's, it's a nightmare
2: it is it's really hard to be spontaneous in terms of the marks you're making with the stitch, I think. And I'm not great about having a a plan when I quilt. I should maybe not admit that out loud, but really sometimes (laughs) I will sit, I have to look at a quilt for a while and figure out what I want to do. And it's hard for me to feel that spontaneity when I've got that thing wadded up underneath my sewing machine. I've done it plenty of times and I could do it again, but it is physically exhausting to do it. And especially depending on what your workspace is like. I've got a pretty good workspace. I've got a big, you know, gate leg table that folds up behind my sewing machine, and I can push a large quilt around on the surface of this, but it's still very difficult. So I started working with a local long arm quilter. Her name is Danielle Wilkes. And she's by the done way, some... for
0: people who don't know what a long arm is, will you just explain what that is?
2: I will. It's a It looks like a sewing machine that's mounted on a big table frame. Think about sort of an industrial-looking table frame with long rollers that go the width, the expanse of the table. So lots of these tables are 10 or 12 feet wide. And then depending on the size of the machine, which is mounted perpendicular to the table, and it's on rollers on a track, So basically, if you think of a traditional sewing machine and you're sewing through it or you're pushing a quilt through it, think of the quilt being a piece of paper and the needle is your pencil. So if you're doing quilting on a traditional machine, you're pushing the paper under the pencil and moving the paper under the pencil. With a long-arm machine mounted on this big track on these rollers, you're basically stretching your quilt on the rollers so you have a work area, depending on the size of the machine harp, you are either working somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 24 inches wide. So you have this long strip that goes the, the width of the table. So if you have a big quilt, you can roll the quilt up on these rollers, and you have this work area, and the machine basically is moving across the surface of the quilt, and then when you do that section, you roll it on and then work on the next section. So instead of pushing the paper under the pencil, you're pulling the pencil across the paper, if you will when you're doing the stitch work. So for people who are making big quilts, it's fantastic because it's easier to do the work of a large quilt to do the stitch work you want. And the labor, I mean, there's still some labor involved with it because you're moving this big machine. But the interesting thing for me, and again, I've done who knows how many thousands of hours of free motion quilting on a domestic machine. So the the muscle memory of doing this on a long arm is entirely different. It's entirely different. And I've not decided, I'm early into this whole new thing, but I haven't decided whether it's to my advantage or my disadvantage that I have all this background with free motion quilting on a domestic machine. The jury's still out as to whether that's helpful or problematic for me in terms of learning this new skill. So, But it was really fun the thing that was amazing to me was that once she did some orientation with me yesterday and we set my quilt up and the quilt that I worked on yesterday was the dimensions of it were about 66 wide by about 69 or 70 inches in length. So, you know, not quite, I don't know. I never make a normal size quilt, I guess. So it's sort of a big throw or maybe a twin size quilt, I guess. But I got the whole thing quilted yesterday.
0: Wow. How long?
2: Well, I was in there, you know, floundering around at first. So my first two rows of quilting are probably not anything we want to examine too closely. But uh, once I got the feel of it, I I just couldn't believe how fast you went. I think I probably got the entire thing done in under, under three hours, probably more like wow. two hours. Wow. I know. And I was That's amazing. It is amazing. And anyone who's done any kind of quilting and one of the things that people always ask you, non non stitch people, non quilt people will say, How long did it take you to make that? And I was just like, Sixty years. I mean, I don't know. Well, I don't know how to answer that because uh, you know, there's so many things that go into the construction of one of those pieces. You're dying, you're printing, those are layers, those take time. Then you're constructing the the pieced quilt. Then you're doing the quilting. I have no idea how long it takes, but I would guess that if I had tried to do that same quilt on my domestic sewing machine, I would probably have taken somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 to 12 hours, I'm guessing. Yeah. So now, I would
0: not doubt it. And you're, you're super fast. I'm sure too. But well, that yes, also I'm, explains to me why most of the time when you see there are services, so you can send your quilt out to be quilted. If you're a person who doesn't want to do the quilting, you just want to do the piecing. Yeah. And I think that most of those services use a long arm. And now it makes sense to me why they can charge what they do. Cause I was always like, how can they afford to do well, this? But if they're using a long arm, it sounds like it would be much faster.
2: Well, it's faster, but I'll tell you, there's a couple of things about long arms that are sort of interesting. Many long arms have computerized and they're called pantographs, which means they're pre-programmed designs that you can overlay onto a quilt. If you don't, if you don't care about the nature of the, the pattern, I mean you care about it obviously, but it, it could be an overall pattern. That's one possibility. There are also new machines that have the ability to focus in on certain parts of your quilt. Let's say you have a block that's 12 inches wide that's strewn throughout. You want a specific design on those blocks. You can program the, the long arm to focus on that block and do a specific pattern. Or And the third possibility is you can free motion quilt the quilt using your, using own, your own spontaneous, spontaneous. Uh, design and it will be done with what's called a stitch regulator, which regulates the length of your stitches on the, on the overall quilt. And fourth, you can do the same thing that I just described, only doing it manually, meaning you do not have a stitch regulator engaged on the machine. So you're basically doing the same thing I would be doing on a machine, uh, a, a domestic machine, no stitch regulator. I'm just pulling the quilt through the machine But in this case, I'm pulling the needle across the quilt and I'm doing my own spontaneous design work. So depending on, let's say you you made a quilt, Julie, and you're sending it out to a long-arm quilter. The cost of that for you is going to be variable depending on what the design work is. If you have somebody who's going to free motion quilt it or you've denoted the quilting and she's going to do it for you, that will probably cost you a little more than if she just puts one of her overall pantograph designs that goes across the entire surface of the quilt.
0: So let me ask you a question because I'm imagining a robot situation here. If you, you are programming in like just an overall design, are you like pushing a button and walking away?
2: You could be. And then the quilt machine, the long arm machine goes across that, that width that it has available to it. You know, it's on roller. So it's, it's going to be working within a window that's Depending on your machine, eighteen or twenty to twenty-six inches in width, all the way across. And once it's covered that, you it stops. You go to the machine, you roll it to the next section that's unquilted. You start the machine, and it does the next section. So that's oh, man. It. No. I want one
0: of those. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it Why do I awesome. have to live in an apartment in New York? That stinks.
2: Well, and even if you don't live in in an apartment in New York even if you have a pretty good, big space like I do those things take up a lot of real estate so my intent at this point is to take some lessons from someone I consider ex, expert in that and then there's a couple of local places that have long-arm machines that will allow you to actually rent time on their machine so for someone who lives in New York you know you might want to explore, locally if there's anyone who allows that Uh, I think that there's a lot of places I know there's a quilt shop out in Los Angeles that has a long arm for that purpose and people who want to use it have to go through a little orientation course so that they know how to load their quilt and how to thread it etc and then they can use the machine which is a great idea a great idea
0: That is a great idea. And I wanted to talk about the stitch regulator for a minute. So for people who don't know, when you do free motion stitching, you are not only controlling where the needle goes, but because you put the feed dogs down, which is what pulls the fabric through your machine, you're actually controlling the stitch length as well. And so really good free motion stitchers can keep a completely even stitch length, meaning all your stitches are the same size the whole time. And more novice or uh, not as good uh free motion quilters it'll sort of be all over the place and I remember Bernina came out with the Bernina stitch regulator which allowed you with absolutely no skill to be able to have stitch length that was perfect when you were free motion quilting which was amazing yes
2: that's absolutely true
0: and and then I'm wondering and you can tell me if I'm wrong here but are you you're a Bernina artist or artisan or something like that you have some affiliation with Bernina yes
2: I'm a Bernina ambassador that's my official title and I have this fantastic, I mean, I'm a Bernina girl. I've had, I have an embarrassing number of Bernina sewing machines to my, to, in my uh, little world, but I now have this beautiful 750 QE, which is one of the larger machines that they offer. It's got a wider harp. It's got a 10 inch harp, meaning the opening between the the needle itself and the mechanism of the machine is 10 inches wide, which is significantly larger than most domestic machines. So, uh, and this machine allows me to either attach the uh, stitch regulator, which I, in my opinion, is the top of the line on the market with sewing machines. It's a very smooth, fluid stitch regulator, and you have two ways of controlling the stitch regulator. You can push a button and it will start sewing and then you move the fabric or your quilt underneath it or you can engage or disengage it via the foot control so and it's a very good stitch regulator I happen to not use it that much I admit maybe they're all cringing at Bernina for me saying this but I think that it comes down to how much experience you have without a stitch regulator. I think it's a fantastic thing and I do like it and I will use it enough so that I can demonstrate it properly. But I think because I've got so much experience without it, that it's actually easier for me to stitch without it. But for someone who hasn't got the million hours of free motion unmarked quilting that I do, it's a wonderful solution. Because what it does is it basically regulates the length of your stitches and makes them look fairly even. So you have this consistent quality of stitch throughout your project, which is great. So I think it's just a personal choice. And um, I think for people who come into quilting and want that quality of stitch and just would rather not, not go through the hours of figuring out how to get it without the stitch regulator, the stitch regulator has been a wonderful solution. So.
0: It's a great shortcut, I think.
2: No, it is. It really is. And I'm comfortable using it, and I've used the stitch regulator on the new Bernina. Bernina just came out with a long-arm machine themselves. It's a Q24, I think is what it's called. And uh, it has the same stitch regulator on it that the domestic machines, and not all the domestic machines have the stitch regulator. It's only the more recent models that have them. And it's an option that Comes with many of them that can be attached if you want to use it. Um, so it's a great thing for a long arm quilt to have that same quality of stitch regulator attached to it. So I think they're really going to have good success with their new long arm machine. And I mean, it's very recent. I saw it for the first time last summer when I was in Birmingham, UK at the Festival of Quilts. So it was the first time I laid eyes on the machine. Now I'm seeing them in, domestically. I, My local quilt shop has a Q24 and it's one of the machines I'll be able to rent time on eventually. So I'm excited about it. That's
0: exciting. I wanna I wanna go drive along our machine.
2: Yeah. Probably costs as much as
0: a car, so saying driving is probably not a bad choice there.
2: I think it's a pretty good choice of words, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanna talk about dinner at eight. Okay. So that's something um, that I see you talking about all the time. And I'd love it if you could describe uh, sort of what it is and then what is going to be happening with it at the International Quilt Festival coming up this fall. All right. Well,
2: Dinner at Eight really is um, a little a little term that my curating partner, Jamie Single and myself, coined. And we based the name of the, of our little club On the fact that when we're at quilt shows or when we gather to uh, play with our little subculture, we usually have dinner at eight o'clock in the evening. And we just have, you know, a variety of gatherings of people that come together at these shows that we normally don't see on a daily basis, but we come together and it's sort of like the world's largest slumber party every year, a couple times a year. And so we just decided it was a great name to describe our, our little organization. And what we have done. We got together because we had both done some online curating. Uh, Jamie had done probably more curating prior to our working together than I had. But we both done some individually. Um, And so at the, I guess it was maybe the first or second year of the Long Beach Quilt Festival. And now I would have to look back to see what, I think it was 2009. She asked me if I would... Help her curate a, an exhibition for that show. We had previously done an online exhibition together, and we work well together, we're friends, and uh, so I said, sure. And so we put that together, and uh, the idea behind these exhibitions is that we spend a lot of time looking at artists online and at shows, and we like to challenge an invited group of artists to submit a piece that is specific to a theme. The first one we curated together was called Edges. And we also give the artists that are invited to uh, create a quilt for that theme that is a specific size. The first three years we did the exhibitions, the size of the quilts was three feet wide by four feet in length. And the interesting thing about doing an an exhibition this way is that it gives the artists a really broad range of ways to interpret a theme. And because the quilts are unified by this, A, the subject, and B, the size, the exhibition becomes a very cohesive and interesting body of work. And so we had such a good time doing it, but every year we have come back to come up with another theme. Uh, we've changed the size of the quilts. We're now in our third quilt size. This year it is 40 by 40. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm having a little brain aneurysm all of a sudden. I'm, I have to look on my notes to see if it's 40 or 50. I can hear, I can hear Jamie rolling her eyes right now as I say this. But uh, we basically do a blind jury We use an online process for curating this show. And we're looking at uh, the artist's way of interpreting the, the theme um, we look at how well their artist statement describes what we're looking at. And uh, we're really excited about the process of doing it. It kind of pushes us personally. And people ask me all the time, why do you do this? It seems like a lot of work. Well, it is, but it's kind of a labor of love. You know, we do a lot of things because, again, we like to be challenged ourselves. And I think when I look at when I'm during a show and we juried the last couple of years, we've juried more than just this show. We've done also a uh, curating for Quilts Inc. They've done an exhibition called What's for Dinner and we're on our third year of that. And we've curated that for them as well. And I think when we look at these pieces, we're looking at the merits of the individual piece and we're looking at all the same things you'd look at when you walk through MoMA and you're looking at a piece of work that's a painting or a sculpture. You're looking at the composition. You're looking at the, uh, what is this saying to you? We're, we're looking at value scale. We're looking at, uh, The color choices, general theme, does it translate well? Perspective? All that kind of stuff. Depending on the I'm
0: wondering when you're curating, are you do you have like I mean, I guess I'm asking, are you doing this on sort of a mathematical thing where like you have categories and you're sort of reading like, you know, aesthetically it's a this and theme wise it's a this and interest wise it's a that and then you sort of figure it out that way or is it more like a gut like this fits, we already have too much of that one, let's go with, you know, how are you looking at it?
2: I think we have to, I have to honestly say it's a little of both those things because we can have a wonderful piece and we've had to release pieces that come into this category. The piece itself is great. It meets the criteria with the things we look at as a piece of artwork. You know, we look at we look at the design, we look at the composition, we look at all those things I just talked about. And it, it translates the theme really well. But we're also then having to look at the body of the collective body of work. So we're looking at the piece on its individual merits first and foremost, I might add. But then we have to make sure that that particular piece is going to play nice with something else in the exhibition. If we're taking 40 pieces and we have this one piece that is such an outlier, I don't think it does, and I, I'm sure somebody would argue uh, against this statement, but I don't think it does the artwork any favor if you put it in a collective body, uh, that, and it has nothing that it can relate to in there. you know what I mean? So it's everything else is this, and then here's this one that is such an outlier, it just doesn't look like it fits even though it fits the theme and it, in itself, it's standalone, a great piece. So we have often had to do that. And it always gives me a great deal of of pain, I guess I'll say, or a little heartache because, um, but I also think it doesn't serve the artist well to include it in an exhibition where it really just looks like it's the, you know.
0: The weird kid on the block.
2: Yeah, for lack of a better way to say it, you know or the only cool kid on the block. I don't know how you want to put that, but we have released pieces because of that. And we also know that we're dealing with a number of other parameters. We have to look at how much linear feet we have at the show because, uh, you know, anybody who's ever curated a show inside these things, you know, there, there is a fee. And um, so we have to, we have to find underwriting for the shows and uh, all those things come into consideration. So we might have, A fantastic number of pieces that are super great, but we only have this many linear feet in which we can hang a show because it's one of many exhibitions in this large show. And anyone who's been at that show, and we generally have worked with Quilt Sync and the International Quilt Festival, and they have several shows in the States. The main one is in Houston in the fall. And, you know, we're limited to how many linear feet we can operate in.
0: So it's it was interesting, I didn't largest. realize there was a fee for those exhibitions, but that explains to me now why things are often curated very closely. Yes. Meaning like pieces are often hung very close together. Which yes. I which it was something like when you go to a museum, for instance, you often think, why is this artwork so far apart from each other? And part of it's so you can enjoy the art individually. But my experience of a quilt festival certainly was that things were hung very close.
2: Yes. And that is that is definitely one of the one of the very, very early reasons for it. Because they, are, you know, they, they have to pay for the real estate, and so um, that fee gets passed along. And of course, they have their own shows that that are that come under the category of the ones that they underlie. The main one is called World of Beauty, and that one is separate. I think a lot of people don't realize this, but you'll go to that show, and you might see a section that is for. Just, I'm just pulling this out of my hat, but there might be a special exhibition of quilts from Japan that are maybe a specific aesthetic. Well, that's what would be called a special exhibition. That is not underwritten by Quilt Inc. It is underwritten by some other, some other organization or possibly a company that is just one of the big exhibitors of the show will underwrite part of that. So it's kind of a complex thing. And uh, so that's another strong reason for limiting the size of the show. Because often, you know, it kills us that we can't take every single one because they all work and they all play well together and we still have to make decisions.
0: Yeah. It reminds me a little bit always of casting because, of course, I come out of the theater world where, you know, casting decisions are so bizarre and often have nothing to do with talent and just to do with, you know, this person's too tall because the only person we have for this other role is X height or whatever,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know.
0: And it's, it's, yeah. it's hard, though, because people, of course, take rejection of any kind very, very personally, even though it may not be, you know, a- anything to do with, you know, your work wasn't good or something like that.
1: That's
2: absolutely right. And that is a very good point to bring up because it's, first of all, anyone who has made any kind of artwork or any kind of artful work, dance, theater, painting, sculpture, you you name it. You know, when you get the courage to put yourself out there, and I think it's a very courageous act, and it doesn't matter to me whether we're talking about uh, a musical on Broadway in New York or you're just putting something in your local uh, community art uh, exhibition. It takes a lot of guts to put yourself out there because it makes you feel vulnerable to show your work because it implies that someone's going to make judgments on it, either award it or look at it and make critical remarks, whatever. So I just, I have to apply to anyone, no matter what the what the reason, or what the venue, when you put yourself out there to show your work, it is an act of courage. So then put on top of that, you possibly will become rejected by that organization. And as my art school graduate daughters have all said to me at one time or another, you know, if you can't paper a small room in your house with your rejection letters, it means you're just not trying hard enough.
0: I agree completely. I think I think rejection is part of it, and you know, to a certain extent, I don't think that everybody should like what you do. I think that you're probably making really interesting art. If not everybody likes what you do, and you know, Dita Von Tees says something which is really about dating more than anything, but I take it to be about art because everything sort of filters to art about me. But she says (laughs) you can be the you know ripest uh, juiciest peach in the bowl, and you just meet somebody who doesn't like peaches.
2: That's exactly you know.
0: And I think I the same thing is true agree. for your art. It's really absolutely. hard with social media and stuff too, because you want to get those likes. You want to get people saying you like it, but I think you really have to listen to yourself and follow the old rule, which is you have to make art for yourself. If other people like it, that is awesome. But if they don't, mm-hmm. you have to not let that stop you. You have to keep doing what you like.
2: You absolutely do. And I couldn't agree more. And I think that, all the things I was saying about why we sometimes release a piece are so true because it doesn't mean that that is not a good piece of work. It may just be, I mean, there's a variety of reasons in why people, why something gets accepted. Maybe there's 10 of that particular style and they can only take two, or maybe it's an outlier in the whole, or you know, the whole collective body of work that's going into that show or whatever. There's a variety of reasons, but at the end of the day, You are the one that it needs to please, and if it happens to please somebody else, then that's just Mm -hmm. fantastic, you know. That's just icing on the cake, in my opinion. And I think the old attitude, the old, the other thing is Mm -hmm. because it's hard not to take that personally. I've been rejected, I've had things. Here's a I think this is really, I like to say this because I think it's so funny, but it's absolutely an honest remark, and that is. I've had things that were rejected from major shows that won best of show in another show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, I can't control who's, who's judging that show. I can't control what their personal aesthetic is. I can't control who else submitted to that show. So I have no idea what work I'm being judged against or with. I can't control any of those variables. The only thing I have control over is the work that comes from my hands and how I make it and I'm trying I try not to I try to look if I get a critique on a piece I'll try to look at that critique and you know try to you know pay attention to it but at the end of the day I'm the only one that it has to matter now right. if there's something That's always made, such a
0: fine line though isn't it like you it, do have to listen to the things that people are saying but not so much
2: Exactly. And so I don't know how, I don't know what to advise people about that. I think you do have to have several layers of skin maybe because you might have to peel one off occasionally. I think you have to be, try to be somewhat, uh, you can't be objective about your own work. I think you can listen to what people say, but at the end of the day, you have to make your own decisions. And I think this is where I'm going to come back around to saying that, One of the things that's good for people who are making work is to continue pushing yourself. Continue, even if you're making the same thing. If you keep doing it, you have to keep making the work. Because if you keep your feet to the flame, if you keep producing work, your work, I don't care how, you could try to avoid it. But if you keep producing work over and over again, you will get better. There's no way around it. There's no way around it.
0: I agree. Adjust. Showing up is vitally important. And I know that everything good that's happened to me in terms of my art evolved evolving has been about showing up.
2: Exactly. There's just no replacement for it. You can sit so no matter
0: how many Bernina Stitch regulators you get, you still have to sit down at the machine and do some sewing.
2: You just do, because the machine is only going to be as good as the user interface, if you will. And that's Often I'll ask people, you know, or people ask me, well, how did you, you know, how did you learn how to do this? You know, there's just nothing that beats a big stack of cheap ugly fabric sitting there next to my machine and me spending time sewing it. And if you want to get good at free motion quilting, you know, I'd say that the the probably minimum envelope of that is a hundred hours of just sitting at the machine and doing it. I just You just can't get around it. If you want to be good at free motion quilting, you just have to keep doing your work. If you want to be better at screen printing or dyeing fabric or painting, mixed media work, doing collages, nothing will substitute for going into your studio and doing the work.
0: I agree. And you know, people often feel like there's a class you can take or a book you can read or something that will let you into a magic world. And I do think that those things make it easier because you know what other people are doing and they may give you some hints and tricks that you would have otherwise discovered. But I also think that Uh, and I use the word play here very purposefully, there's nothing more important than play. I think in play you learn because it's like when students ask me and they say, well, should should I do this or not? And I always say you should always do it if you have a question because if it's the right choice, you'll know, and if it's the wrong choice, you'll know. But the only time you won't know is if you don't do it.
2: Yes, nothing substitutes for that, and I really do agree with you. And I think some of the best things that I've ever made, some of the best discoveries have been Me puttering around in my studio and then asking myself, what if fill in the blank, what if maybe I'm monoprinting and all of a sudden I say, what if I pick this thing up off the floor and made a mark with it? (laughs) You know, what if I put this digital image down and tried to build something around it? Asking myself, what are the possibilities and then exploring them have been some of the best things that have happened to me. And that, implies that I'm giving myself not only I mean we all go in if we're making work and we're showing work we have things we have deadlines that we have to adhere to but I think it's so important for artists to allow themselves you said it play time creative play time it's purposeful time that you're giving yourself it's a gift of time that you're giving yourself to go in and putter and explore some possibilities tinkering around with your tools imagining some other path uh, you just don't know what could happen until you do it. And sometimes magic happens. Sometimes something amazing happens that will alter your course. And you just don't know what that is until you give yourself the freedom of the possibility of exploration. So,
0: I agree. I think what if is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself as an artist. And probably as a person, you should ask yourself what if a lot more often too, right? Right
2: it might be a good overall thing for us. It really might, That it certainly is important for me in the studio. And I feel I, I will cite last year as an example. We had a, a crazy year because of some things in the family and we were traveling a lot. And I started feeling antsy. Like I would rush into my studio and think, Oh, I've got to do, you know, I've only got, I've only got one day. I've got to do, fill in the blank, you know, maybe it's this deadline or that thing i have got some previous obligation for. And I started realizing that I was really marginalizing my creative, I don't have any agenda time in here. And I really started noticing that it was affecting my work. I started being really blocked and unable to just come in here and, you know, putter around and play. I needed to have that window of unscheduled time to just come in here and play. It's I really hadn't realized I think in, before this past year how essential that is to my process. And uh, I learned I learned the hard way last year. I mean, I still made work, but it, I struggled against my own. Uh, I don't know what. I'm not even sure I can say what it was. but I think no, it's but just No, but I totally get it
0: because that's, that's one of the reasons that I've had to kill a lot of my travel schedule and really cut back on the teaching is just because I agree. I think if you're not – if you're traveling too much and you're doing all that kind of stuff, you're not – and you, then what happens is when you get to your studio, all you have left are deadlines. And so mm-hmm. you don't have what I call like the boredom time. The time yeah. when you're like, when you actually are like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to make and this guy, I don't know, try that or I have this idea and it's weird because instead you're making destination art. You're trying to make art for a purpose, for a reason, which is great and it can be fine, but I think it's not always the most fruitful kind of work yes. that you do.
2: Agreed. And that's exactly what was happening to me. I, I didn't allow for the what if time and it really affected everything. It affected my ability to feel even in the deadline work that I was allowing myself that kind of creative flow. I, I don't know. It was, I, I think that we do kind of dance that it's sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because I know you love to teach and I love to teach. And I really love the creative energy and the exchange of ideas that occurs in a workshop environment. I get, I always feel as much if not more from my students when I'm teaching because of that, I love it. I wouldn't give it up for anything, but I have had to kind of, I've had to be selective about, or, or maybe I should say not selective so much as just restrict the times I'm doing it because of that very issue. And yeah. uh,
0: Teaching is energizing in the sense that I always remember why I fell in love with it in the first place. But Mm -hmm. then it's also, it's just the time that it takes. I wish there were a magical way in which if I didn't have to do any prep work or get on a plane (laughs) or go anywhere or do anything, then it would be perfect, right? It would.
2: You know, my personal (laughs) fantasy related to that is, this is my ongoing fantasy about traveling to teach. Because, you know, we don't travel light when we're doing this stuff. I mean, we're carrying all this crazy stuff with us. I haven't figured out how to minimize it. And I always have this fantasy that I can make all of my supplies Shrink down to the size of a sugar cube that I can tuck in my back pocket when I go get on a plane, and then when I get on the other end of the destination, I just you know click my Harry Potter wand over it, and it all expands out into six boxes of wonderfulness. All my I was going to say, wax. I feel like we're
0: in a we're in a Mary Poppins kind of place right now, but yes, that would be lovely. Definitely, definitely. So because listen, we've we've been talking for more than an hour, so we should probably wrap up. I know. It's because mom wouldn't shut up. She just kept talking and talking, and she ate up all the time.
1: I apologize. Yes.
0: <laughs> well,
2: I... <laughs> the woman can't get a word in edgewise between the two of us. I feel bad. I feel
0: No, bad. this was I'm awesome. And honestly, the thing, Leslie, is you're so knowledgeable and you're so interesting. I could talk to you for another three hours, but I did promise you it would be just an hour. So
1: before we wrap up, though, Mom, would, would you like to get in a word edgewise? Sure. <laughs> uh, because this is the way I work, You, an earlier part of the conversation just got me going off on a tangent in my own mind, so... You were talking about how the traditional quilters and the modern quilters and how sometimes people are resistant to the new ways of doing things. And I was thinking that that's probably happening in all art forms. Lines are blurring. So if you showed Michelangelo a light sculpture, he would say, what? That is not a sculpture. (laughs) Um, But then I was thinking that more and more, we want the viewer of the art to understand the history of the materials, the limitations within which you were working, your process, your technique. We want the viewer to educate himself about uh, who you are and what your intention is. It's almost like an art historical approach to art appreciation, rather than like in medieval days, where if you just knew the subject, so you go to a cathedral and you see the window, and if you know the subject, that's all you needed to know. You didn't need to know anything about the person who created it or the conditions under which they worked. So now it's almost like we expect the viewer of the art to fully uh, uh, to educate themselves about the artist in order to appreciate what we're doing. And it's a whole different kind of way of approaching things. And... Well, I would
0: say it actually loops full circle to the conversation that we had at the very beginning of the podcast, which is to say, I think that a lot of art originally was just, if you looked at it, it was aesthetically attractive or it told a story or it communicated to you in some way. Then art went through a great revolution in which it was more about expression, et cetera. And like I said, I don't like cubism, or I think I said in a more politic way, I don't respond to cubism. And I think that's a thing, which is, uh, and I even said, like, I think with some education, perhaps I'll learn to appreciate it. But I think a lot of if you look at modern and contemporary art, whether it's fabric art, quilt art, you know, painting, mixed media, sculpture is about, uh, if you have a great knowledge in art, you can appreciate where the person's coming from and you understand the intellect behind it and it becomes something different. Do you know what I mean? But it is a different way of looking at art.
1: All right. How many times now do you go to a contemporary? Sorry, do you go to a contemporary museum and they tell you, oh, the artist made this using spit and ink, or the artist made this out of discarded candy wrappers. Mm -hmm. So what it's made of and and how the person got that is part of the appreciation of the art. Or even, we'll go back to the Gee's Bend, or you said Gee's Bend quilts, knowing that the denim in the quilts was from their used clothing Mm -hmm changes the way you look at it. Or
0: even Absolutely. that woman who won best of show who you were saying, Leslie, and you were saying, Oh, she did it with the procyon dyes, which are hard to paint with that knowledge changes your viewing of it. Whereas I who have never used those dyes would be like, I have no idea.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe it doesn't even matter if we know what it's been used of. I'm not sure. I think that's another thing we can discuss, but I think it's so interesting to have these conversations. I mean, and it, it, this occurs over and over again. I mean, Look at the, uh, the phobus in, in the painting realm. Look at, you know, look at the Impressionist painters and how they were regarded by the, the traditionalists. And, uh, you know, this is a story that's reviewed itself through art so many times over. And there's always been controversy when someone pushes an envelope and expresses themselves in a different way that's not more the acceptable, you know, standard way of doing things. And so I think it's a great thing that it happens I understand the resistance, but I also, um, I think it's a very interesting process that we go through and it is a matter of education and it is a matter of, uh, seeing something over and over again until it becomes less of an outlier to you visually. Yeah. Um, and so it's, to me, it's going to be fascinating from what you are saying earlier, Julie, about educating yourself about cubism. I think it'd be very interesting to... To revisit this conversation in six months to a year after you've had this work, after you've had these classes, and you've had a chance to view this work and maybe make some that's in the style of cubism. And I think it'd be fascinating to revisit the same conversation and ask yourself how you feel about it now. Has that changed um, based on familiarity or more information? Because I think it really makes a difference.
1: I think LaGree wants to come back on the show. <laughs> I'd happily come back to talk to you. I like
2: you Well, you are welcome back
0: because there's so much more to talk about. So uh, one of the things we do need to do just before we go is, Leslie, where can people find you online?
2: Well, I'm out there. I have a website, LeslieTuckerJenison.com. I have a blog that's the same, LeslieTuckerJenison.blogspot. You can find me as Leslie Jenison on Instagram, and I'm Leslie Tucker Jenison on Facebook. Is that enough? I think I'm on Twitter that's, too, Leslie that's, Jenison. That's,
0: there, I, I'm, I'm surprised you're Leslie Jennison everywhere.
2: I just kind of am. <laughs> Seems like the easiest thing, you know.
0: Well, you can then become can a Leslie Jenison, uh internet stalker just like me if you follow her on Instagram, <laughs> which is what I well, do.
2: The feeling is uh, quite mutual, ma'am. I there have you a
0: few go. of yours as well. So. Uh and mom, I know nobody can ever find you online and you you did talk for a total of thirty seconds. I'm very proud of you. It <laughs> what you, you said, I'm sure we'll get the most comments about your thirty seconds than anything else. Um, as always, you can find me at balserdesigns.typepad.com. And do leave us your comments or questions at balserdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show to at Leslie Jennison or at balserdesigns, please use the hashtag, hashtag artingpodcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.